All right, all right. How are we doing? It's always amazing how fast you guys get quiet. It doesn't work anywhere but in here. Any teachers in the room? Does that work for you in your classroom? No? It's a strong no, isn't it? Yeah, the last service was a little off the chain. That was your fault. Welcome to ANC this morning. A um, couple interesting things coming at us. Next week, a week from today, uh, we are going to officially charter as a United Methodist congregation. And if that's a mystery to you, that's fine. Uh, we're just going to legally become part of the denomination that we've been part of uh, for a while. It's going to take on a new form. There will be an interesting and very odd little exchange where we'll actually name this place. I bet you can't guess what we're going to name it. Austin New Church, yeah. You'll have to choose a pastor. Big suspense. Not sure how that's going to work out. Some of you are like, this is my chance. I've always wanted a pastor of this church. Uh, um, so next week, if you come, we're going to do our best to make it meaningful. One of the realities at ANC is that there's always 30 people in the room who are just here from out of town. It would be a little strange to pop in on somebody's chartering service, except that it's actually a really profound thing that we're doing. And we've been working really hard on this for years. And so I, I think there's a way to make this amazing. So that'll be next week. The week after, you'll hear more about this later, but we're going to have our first interest meeting for anyone who's interested in being part of a newly formed congregation, Spanish-speaking congregation here under the roof at ANC. Maybe in the future we'll launch it out to the east side of Austin. Maybe for now we'll leave it here. It's minimal risk to us financially and all of those things involved. And that's why Caesar's here all the way from Chile, and so you'll hear more about that. But good things coming for ANC. If you're following along the Facebook live stream, let us know you're out there. We, hear, we see all these numbers, and we haven't paid for the information to figure out who's chiming in, but it's a 1,000 people watching somewhere. Don't know why or how. Um, it's probably all the people that are missing from here. That's what's going on, though. The, you see that chair next to you? They're just at home Facebook living. But we're grateful you're there. Let us know where you are, how we can uh, be a blessing to you. If you're in the room and you're new here, my encouragement to you always is the same. Uh, make some connections, take some risks. It just so happens that today is a first Sunday of a month, which means immediately following the service, we're going to traipse off in multiple directions to have lunch together. It's an easy way to get to know people. We'll be heading to ABGB. Some will be heading to Pine House Pizza. Um, so if you're new, we welcome you. We know that that's an awkward thing to do to come into a church for the first time. If you're one of the faithful, if you've been here a while, or if you're one of the people who financially carry the weight of this little ministry, we want to say thank you from the bottom of our heart. Uh, this takes resources, and I think what we're doing together is unique, it's special, and I think it's worth doing. And so, welcome to all this morning. Uh, if you're newish, I want to warn you, we aren't very good consumers of average spiritual products. This is not kind of a normal church we're a little bit odd. Uh, we are thinkers and we are deconstructors and we are mystics and we uh, are building a unique faith community around something we share in common, which is wonder and curiosity and a willingness to think hard and question. We are not so tied by doctrines and airtight belief systems and we are not so married to certainty. And so I hope that encourages you. I hope that picks your interest up. We are an odd little thing. This isn't a place for everyone, and we know that, but for those of us who are here, and I'm thinking specifically of this week, for those of us who are engaged deeply relationally in this place, this place can save your life. These networks of people make the difference in crisis times. We're thriving, we're growing, God is good, and you are all welcome. Join in the fun. 
you're always welcome, no matter where you are. So just that little bit as an opener. As you know, we're in the middle of the season called Epiphany, and today the lectionary has us turning our attention to Matthew 5. Now this is when in the Gospels it really starts to heat up, and this is some of my favorite stuff coming at us right ahead. These are the opening words of Jesus' most important early discourse than you and I would know it as the Sermon on the Mount. And it's always fun to be reminded, and Caesar and I, as we prepped this week, he reminded me of something that I think I had forgotten since seminary. Of course, it's the only thing I've forgotten since seminary. Yeah, that's supposed to be funny. Um, but that when Matthew writes, Matthew's particular burden is to establish a connection between Moses and Jesus. So whatever Mark sat down to write about, long after Paul starts writing his epistles, Mark wrote his eyewitness account, and then Matthew comes along and says, wait a minute, there's a missing detail here. Matthew writes to establish a connection between Moses and Jesus. What does this mean? Well, this means if Moses went up a mountain, then Jesus is going to go up a mountain, right? If Moses had to be hidden and stowed away to survive his childhood because there was a threat of death, then Jesus is going to have to undergo that same process. Interestingly enough, I wonder if you knew this, but that's only recorded in the book of Matthew. The Jesus going down into Egypt and hiding out while Herod's looking to kill the babies. Whatever Moses does, Jesus is going to do. Which is why, even though Luke describes the Sermon on the Mount as a sermon in a valley, in a flat place, Matthew says, nope, he went up the mountain because that's what Moses did. And so that was a helpful reminder as we think through the lens of Matthew and his eyewitness account of what happened. Now we don't know how much of what we're going to call the Beatitudes, which is this opening part of this discourse, we don't know if this took the five minutes that it takes to read it, or if this was a collection of points over a sort of rabbinical retreat that went maybe days, maybe weeks. We're not super sure. It probably took a little bit longer than it takes to read it. But either way, no matter whether this is a minute or a week or whatever this is, here's what I am coming to realize about the Beatitudes this week as I have studied them. There are more shocking contradictions and provocative paradoxes buried in these few verses than anyone can take in a single sitting. This is upside down world stuff we're dealing with here. This is not Jesus offering gentle correctives. This is putting everything on its head. Some describe this as kingdom upside down theology. Jesus, I think, is addressing the expectation of this crowd and he's gonna spin everything in a different direction. So let's read how Matthew remembers that. Matthew 5 verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, and here we go, these, these should be familiar to you, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then finally, blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, just a little side thought that didn't occur to me in the week, but it occurs to me now. If I'm Jesus' handler, if I'm his agent, if I'm Susie to Mage Mitchell here, or Mage, uh, uh, what's, uh, Ma Maisel. Thank you. That only works if you actually can get it right. I'm only four seasons in, so you, you know. But if I'm the handler here, if I'm one of the early called disciples, some of you have no idea what we're talking about. It's called the Marvelous... 
Miss Maisel. Yeah, it's very worth watching. Same people wrote the dialogue as Gilmore Girls, so it moves quick, so you can't sleep to it, but anyway. But if I'm handling, if I'm attaching myself to this young rabbi, and I'm waiting on his first big teachings, and this is what he brings out, I'm looking for the receipt. This is truly disturbing, upside-down world kind of teaching. It's important to remember, these aren't imperatives. Jesus is not saying, uh, it's best if you're poor, you should cry a whole lot. It would probably be really good if you starved to death. Jesus isn't saying that this is what it takes to live a virtuous life. Jesus is observing something about the life of this crowd. These are descriptions of real life. It's also important to understand that Matthew writes to a particular group of people who understood the world to be really bad and then something really good coming next. And so this apocalyptic sort of hang on, it's not over, it's coming, it's not easy, but but, but something better is coming. This would have been something formed around what you and I might call liberation theology, which is not terribly natural to a white church who sits on top of really the heap of all the good stuff, culturally, linguistically, socioeconomically, understanding a mindset of apocalyptic liberation from oppression is going to take some work for us. Now, we're going to do some of that work this year, but it's a stretch for us to understand it. It's important to remember those things as Matthew writes. And so let me just give you a few introductory impressions about these teachings if I'm hearing them for the first time. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, whether you prefer Luke's account of these teachings or Matthew's, you see Luke writes, blessed are the poor, Matthew writes, blessed are the poor in spirit. Either way, poverty is almost universally looked at as a status that nobody wants to find themselves in. How can we look at lack and want and say we are blessed? So from his very opening sentence, I'm sure the crowd is going, wait a minute, wait a minute, what do you mean? What a shock it must have been to hear that living in lack is not a curse, but somehow is a blessing. He goes on, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, we mourn mostly when we lose things, or worse yet, when things are taken from us. Help me understand how this is blessed? Not real sure. He goes on, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, this one, frankly, makes absolutely no sense at all. These folks knew for sure that the people that were currently inheriting the earth The Roman Empire were the ones who took it by force, not by meekness. At this point, the crowd must have been real quiet. Jesus carries on. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And I'm saying, okay, we're having a little bit better of a second quarter here. It's kind of coming up, I should say, second half, and that's all the football you're going to get today from me. Could care less. I overheard a conversation somewhere in public today where someone was saying, oh, I love my church on Super Bowl Sunday. We always have a war between the demons and the saints. Not at ANC we don't. I'm just saying. <laughs> Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This begins, I, I'm, I'm starting to understand this one. As long as we can define righteousness as something that's actually edible, because the words he used would have summoned hunger in the crowd. If you're hungry and if you're thirsty, he's connecting righteousness. Interesting connection. This next one, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. This starts to feel like the golden rule. Now, I can understand this. This one actually makes sense. He's essentially saying or suggesting if you show mercy, mercy will come back. And if I'm the handler, I'm thinking, okay, he can pull this out yet. We can, we can have a good, strong fourth quarter here. He goes on, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
This one is intuitive. How else can you see God if, if, if you're not pure in heart? How else could you appreciate God in the simple things and the humble things without a pure heart? This travels across all faith systems. It seems that those who see most clearly are those who have the pure heart. I get where he's going. And then he says this, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And it's lost on us in English, but that sons of God is actually a title. This would have summoned from this crowd a certain awareness. You see, a thousand years before Jesus takes to teaching, Chinese emperors considered themselves to be the sons of God, sanctioned divinely to lead in the earth. This crowd would have been able to summon some history related to Alexander the Great about 350 years prior, who called himself the son of God. Egyptian pharaohs of various different dynasties did the same as recently as 600 BC, the Japanese emperors would look at themselves and say, we are the sons of God. How, tell me how, church, does this go with peacemaking? Exactly none of the leaders that would have come to, to, come to, to recollection of this crowd, none of them ascended their thrones through making peace. All of them had to grab it and take it. The same is true today. I wonder, where is he going next? It gets worse before it gets better. He goes on to say, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Being persecuted for the sake of doing what's right doesn't sound like blessing to me. I don't know about you. And it would have sounded uh, like anything but blessing to this crowd. You see, the kingdom of heaven, as he begins to cultivate this concept, and they would have to walk a while to understand this, but this, this is a conversation about justice and mercy now. How do you get there by being persecuted for righteousness' sake? Finally, blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And I could have taken this one without the word falsely. Falsely accused? Are you kidding in this case, there's no ambiguity whatsoever. This statement comes right out and names false accusation for being associated with Jesus on his account as another reason to be considered blessed. And I ask you, what sort of sense can we make of this teaching? I'm sorry, friends, but this sounds to me like utter nonsense. Jesus could have said something that would have been familiar. He could have said, remember that God sees you when you're being persecuted. Remember that even though you suffer under the boot of empire, God's got the score. He could have reminded them of God's faithfulness, but no, he doesn't. He redefines the category of curse and blessing. To call this stuff blessed, poverty and lack and want and false accusation, to call it blessed is terrible. To call the people suffering it blessed is almost inconceivable. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, and I would applaud you if you were, wait a minute, didn't Jesus bring good news to the oppressed and to the poor? How is any of this good news? It almost feels to me like he's trying to scare this crowd away. Or maybe he's warning them of something that's terrible to come. Or maybe Jesus is looking at this crowd and he's truly seeing them. Maybe Jesus had been traveling with them for a while, Maybe as the text infers, he'd been walking with them. Maybe, the, maybe it took a minute to get up the mountain. Maybe he had come up this mountain hearing stories of oppression and poverty and lack. Maybe he knew half this crowd had no provision for lunch. Maybe he knew that they were being called the sons of the devil. These were the forgotten ones. These were the ones that would glom on to a early rising rabbi because they had no other hope. Maybe he had heard them. Maybe he had seen them. And maybe what Jesus is announcing is heaven's big declaration that they are not cursed, but they are blessed. Well, I wonder, 
Maybe he's trying to say that poverty and sadness and powerlessness and want and deprivation and mercy denied and the inability to see God and being called the sons of the devil and being persecuted for false accusations for whatever reason, maybe Jesus is trying to say, this does not mean you are forgotten. This does not mean you are cursed. Maybe what Jesus is saying is blessed are you, all of you. Maybe this is an announcement about how God sees us. Maybe this is a pronouncement of our inherent blessedness because we are human, not our cursedness. Maybe this is God saying through Jesus, there is no more cursed thing. It's being redeemed. It's been restored. Now, I tr- listen, I hear what's rising. I know what comes up in us. Yeah, we're going to have to rewind a whole lot of tape in order to get back to a place where we can believe this. We're going to have to deconstruct a whole lot of assumptions that we made about the world and God's anger towards all things human. We're going to have to do some deep breathing to settle into this. But just for a moment, think about what I'm suggesting here. Could this be the case? Maybe Jesus' first big sermon to humanity addresses the fear that we are somehow cursed by God. And the first thing he says is it doesn't matter how far, how far, how much you have fallen, how dark your life may be. It doesn't matter. You are blessed. Blessed are you is the message of the Beatitudes. Could we be looking at a list of all of the natural evidence that we accumulate to prove to ourselves, of course God hates us, of course we're cursed. Look at the things that have happened to me. I don't know if I'm the only one in the room who thinks this, but the first thing that goes wrong, I look back and I say, what did I do? What have I done? If you grew up in the Midwest, you know what I'm talking about. It's a sunny day, yeah, but we're sad because it'll probably rain tomorrow. I probably did something. I don't know if this is the concept of God you had, but what an announcement. You see, the natural evidence that would say God has forgotten us, Jesus comes and says he gathers them all on a hill and he says, dear ones, you are blessed. You are not cursed. Do you remember the time when Peter says, God, I can't eat that thing? God whispers to Peter through a dream, you get to call no things cursed. Nothing is cursed anymore. Remember the time in Galatians 3 where Paul writes that Jesus becomes cursed so that to remove the curse from us, I wonder, I wonder if we have internalized this message. You see, we started Epiphany with the story of this universal logic of love. We see three wise men, or however many wise men, coming from Persia, coming to the place where Jesus was born, and we watch them bear gifts saying that love in the form of a baby makes the most compelling sense of all. That's where we started Epiphany. Then we looked at the baptism of Christ where God the Father literally declares over his son his pleasure. And through that declaration, we can own that as children of God. That's what we looked at the week after after. Then we were reminded that we are the ones who point to the source, that we are the moon to the sun of God's love. We are not the point ourselves. We are not the ones who transform the world. We are the ones to be transformed by love and by referring to God through discipleship. Then the the, the world is summoned to good news. And then last week, we learned that if we are ready enough to make the next yes, to say the next yes, to follow this master, then we are indeed ready enough to follow And in case we're worried about discipleship and where this master might lead, we were reminded by Mallory last week that we can always begin again. And on that foundation, we add this truth, this profound opening aria to heaven's opera of love towards us. And what is the message? We are blessed. All of us. We are not cursed, we are blessed. Even the ones among us who find ourselves hip deep in evidence that God has forgotten us, we are blessed.
And in case you're starting to think I've lost my mind and I'm reading a different book, it's actually the Bible we're drawing from. Caesar, come take us through the next text in 1 Corinthians that comes to us from the lectionary. Now, Caesar is my premier New Testament scholar, so I'm not going to set it up too hard for you to hit, but good luck, buddy. You need to find better scholars. Okay. Oh, it's on. It's on. Good afternoon, ANC. If, well, you already know my name is Cesar. For so many people, so many people, the words in the Bible have one only possible answer. It's a very small word. You know that word. We don't say that word very often here, but it's that word is amen. People just read the Bible and they expect to receive that kind of answer. Amen. So tons of people suppress doubt because they think it is the enemy of the faith. But the doubt resonates with the faith. A silence resonates with the music. It's impossible to do music without, without silence. And believe me, it is impossible to walk in faith if we don't understand that doubt is a part of it. John the baptizer doubted Jesus while in jail. The disciples Doubted Jesus was who he said he was. The writer of Ecclesiastes and the author of many psalms doubted. They all doubted. So why am I saying this? Okay. If we read the scriptures without struggling with them, we might be reading them wrong. These sacred words are meant to push us out, out of our comfort zone to embrace Scandal and mystery. The Beatitudes, which are, as Jason said, paradoxes, basically, invites us to consider a different reality outside of our current life because they contradict our perceptions of life. And it is, this is central to the DNA of Christianity. Paul, who wrote years before the writers of the Gospels, knew that and put out this paradox into his letter. So we will take a look to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. At some point, uh, I'm going to need your help. There's a word, well, English is hard for me, but this word is super hard. Okay. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but... To us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will. Thank you. That sounds like another word for me. Okay. I won't say that. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumble block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. 
For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. I would like to explain a few things about these verses. Paul is not saying that wisdom and human intelligence are bad. He's not saying that. It's been said that humans, with all our advance in knowledge and technology, we become addicted to certainty. Certainty, yeah, that's the word. It is part of the human condition to want to know all the answers. We want to know all the answers. There's people listening sermons all the time with their iPhones in their hands. And if they have a single doubt about the preacher saying, you just Google it. Am I right? All the time. In casual conversations, we do the same. We want to know exactly. We want all the explanations. So the Roman Empire had their own explanations for how the world worked. And of course they did. They ruled the world. But so did the Greek Epicureans, the Stoics, and cynical philosophers. They were the intellectuals of the time. And believe me, people love to hear a good and aesthetic argument, even if it's empty. And Jewish scribes and Pharisees attempted, attempted to do the same in the name of the religion revealed to them by Yahweh. So, empire... Science and religion. What a trio. All of them trying to explain the world. And this is what Paul addresses in verse 22. Jews were looking for miracles. While the Greeks or Greek or Romans were looking for wisdom. And so both groups, they were looking for things that didn't, quite, didn't fit quite well with the message of the cross. Uh, as you know, I'm a father of three boys, and oftentimes they are looking for things that are not necessarily bad, but things that won't provide real satisfaction. So if it's up to me, I'm not, and I'm not doing any kind of counseling to parents here, it's just my testimony. So if it's up to me, I prefer to disappoint them by offering, yeah, I'm a good dad. Okay, I prefer to disappoint them by offering something different. Sometimes it's a no. That's a very common word in my mouth, no. Sometimes it's a challenge. Sometimes it is something to think about it. So I think Paul is trying to do something like that. Provide to these groups something to think deeper than their own tradition, than their own explanation of the world. So he's trying to explain the gospel, and he said something like this. We are preaching about a guy who is the Messiah. He was slaughtered by the empire, but he was resurrected on the third day. And that message could have a lot of sense for us uh, because we are in the middle of the Christian tradition. But in those days, that message sounded absolutely ridiculous, nonsense. Absurd. A Jew could say, so Paul, you say this guy is the Messiah. So that, that's impossible. The Messiah is supposed to free, to set us free, to overthrow the empire, not die hanging from a cross. And they could quote in Deuteronomy even, 
saying, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. A Roman could say, hey, Paul, you say this Christ is Lord when everybody knows Caesar is Lord. So you are crazy. In fact, we kill your Lord in the most humiliating way, in the way we kill the worst in society, on a cross. So Caesar is Lord, not me, the other guy. Finally, a Greek could say, okay, Paul, so this Messiah died, right? Okay, well, that is something we can, we can accept that. At least he freed himself from his mortal and corrupt body. But you also said he resurrected? That is not sense. nonsense. It is like taking one step forward, two steps backwards. Why he would do something like that? Because remember, for ancient Greek philosophers, the body and the matter was just heavyweight to transcend. The center of the gospel, according to Paul, is the cross, which, as you already realized, was the biggest scandal for the ancient religious world. The Bible shows that Jesus was, was rejected by his family, his hometown, and the religious system itself. Actually, today, today, there's, there are even people who say that the cross was the evidence that God rejected Jesus. They use the phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is in Matthew. Jesus is quoting Psalm 22. And we should read the entire Psalm to understand that in the cross, God the Father was there with Jesus, but there with him. So nothing could be, have been further from the truth than say Jesus was rejected by God. The cross was not about rejection. It was about reconciliation. That day, when Jesus went up the mountain to deliver the Sermon of the Mount... He wasn't different than anyone else. He was one of the poor, one of those who mourned. He was meek. He was angry for justice and for bread too. He was a peacemaker, etc., etc. If we look closely at the Beatitudes in both versions, in Matthew and in Luke, we could see Jesus telling the people something like this, something like this. You, you may be rejected by your family, your nation, even your religion. You may feel the oppression of the empire. We, we are the same. But this, this, doesn't, this does not mean you are rejected by my father. No, you are loved. You are accepted. You are blessed. Not cursed. Christianity was born where a weak God, a weak God and rejected people collide. It is hard to imagine how Christianity became the opposite to this. Christians became the oppressors, and now it is like we have the monopoly of God, deciding who is in and who is out. But that probably is a theme for another sermon, not for this one. The text says in verse 26, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. 
So according to Jesus' teaching, those first followers, the rejected and suffering ones, even though they were a minority, they were the ones who were blessed by God. And today, and please, let's do this simple exercise. Take a look around you. Look beside you, behind you. We are just a bunch of broken people. Mm. But today, we are the blessed ones. Thank you, Cesar. There's a line that came from a poem that Mark wrote recently, the form of a benediction where he talked about this king of refugees. So this opening message, Jesus' opening message to the crowd was this simple message that God has not forgotten and you are not cursed. I wonder, I wonder, church, what would change about our lives if we actually believed that. I wonder how things would change. You see, I don't know exactly what you're going through today. I don't know if you're living with lack and with want. I don't know if literal hunger and thirst are your daily reality. I don't know if spiritual hunger and thirst are your daily reality. I don't know if you're seeking something to fulfill something deep inside you. I don't know if you're sad or lonely if you feel forgotten or abandoned. I don't know if you're struggling to keep your heart pure, to keep your eyesight clear, to see God. I don't know if you struggle wishing for mercy for yourself and punishment for your neighbor. I don't know if you've accepted false accusation as a category of blessing, even when persecuted. I don't know. But I do know this. None of this is punishment from God. We are not cursed, we are blessed. I think if we could grab those one, that one concept, everything would change. And maybe this doesn't connect to you because maybe your life is rosy, and then I would just encourage you to remember this. This is the gospel we preach to the world. You are not cursed, you are blessed. I think of St. Patrick in the third century, travels back to Ireland to bring the good news to the people, and he says, here's our strategy. We're gonna live here, and we're gonna say we see God when we see him. And his followers said, well, what does this mean? He says, well, when babies are born, we say, God blessed you. Look at that. When crops grow, our job is to say, look at God's favor on you. This is the message we bring the world. You would think these opening words would have set things straight, would have been hellfire and damnation, and this is what Jesus brings us. You are blessed. You are not cursed. Why don't you join me on your feet? It's a simple message, really. It's the simple ones that get under the radar for me. I don't know about you. If you're able to join me on your feet, do that band. Join us up front. Here we go. Ready? Blessed ones, you've heard it said you can't convince everyone, but I say to you, the pieces of this puzzle fit together long before they didn't. Don't get too caught up in the finer points. Signs turn on and off, and words work just as well for liars. So stick with the body, heart set on mending even as it's broken. Go in peace.